That was a clip from Berlioz's Grand Messe des Morts, and I'm delighted to be joined by the conductor of that performance, the founder and artistic director of the Gabrielli Consort and Players, Paul McCreish. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. It's good to be here. That's a recording from 2011, which is a, quite an undertaking, a 500-strong recording. Must yes, mean- that nearly killed me. I, I, every, you know, my overriding recollection of that is backache and arm ache and everything ache, because the uh, in the back row of the choir must have been at least what, 40 or 50 metres from where I was conducting. So it was um, quite a huge uh, uh, production. And, of course, it was written for a massive cathedral-like acoustic, which is exactly the sort of acoustic you need for that piece, but it doesn't make it easy to coordinate, especially when Berlioz writes very fast music. But that was the beginning of... uh, a series of recordings with which we make with the Wroclaw Philharmonic Choir, and in that case with the uh, Wroclaw Philharmonic Orchestra as well as Gabrielli Consul and Players. It's the uh, beginning of this joint British-Polish project, which has to date produced three major oratorios, and I'm very proud that they take part in this because I think it's fair to say in the current climate, um, you're not going to have recordings of the Gromis anymore very often. Uh, yes. We were very lucky that we were able to record with period instruments in the in the brass department and in the percussion, which is where you really hear the difference. But I was yeah. also pleased with the the quality of the, the choral singing in particular. I mean, it was actually the Brasso Philharmonic Choir, which is half the choir, is a very young choir, but it's uh, amazing quality already. And every time I go back to work with this choir, it gets better and better, so it's fantastic. Yes, I, the initial remit of the Gabrieles has certainly grown since um, you first founded the group. Yes, I mean, we started off, you know, as, uh, uh, inevitably as, as a period instrument Baroque group or Renaissance group even. And... I'm not particularly sure I was ever um, uh, anything of a specialist. I think, I think I've always had very wide musical interests. In fact, I studied 20th century music at university. But in those days, in the early sort of mid to 80s, uh, you know, I got the sort of tail end of the early music revolution. Unfortunately, I'm young enough not to have made much money on it, but at least there was work in those days, and it was a good place to start. Um, and I loved very much working in that repertoire for about 10 years of my life. As I got slightly older, I, I realised that I want, there was a niche I wanted to scratch, which was to do more work in the classical, romantic and, 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 and 20th century periods, which I now do. Um, but on the other hand, it's always nice to go back to Baroque music. I, I do love this music very, very deeply. And I think for me, actually working in all the repertoires is very interesting because it, I think it, it, you know, it, it really enriches the music making experience. If you have a historical background when you come to later repertoire, it makes a lot of sense. But I think also if one's working constantly in the big symphonic repertoire and the big oratorios, when you come back to early music, you have another range of colours and a different set of perspectives. So I hope one illuminates the other. Absolutely. It's, I mean, what really sort of stands out to me is the contrast between these amazing large-scale projects we have with Winged Lion, such as um, the Berlioz, the Mendelssohn Elijah, uh, Britain's War Requiem, and then these incredibly intimate recordings with um, Songs of Farewell and the Festive Disc Incarnation. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, if there should be, uh, you know... We're often asked, you know, what makes Gabrielli unique? I said, what makes me unique if I am unique? And it's actually that the public should never really be quite sure what the next CD should be. And it may well be a collection of Renaissance motets, or it might be Gura Lida, and nobody's really quite sure. And that's probably how it's always going to remain. Um, I'm very proud of the vocal records we made, the choral records. Um, I don't really need to do this work. There's plenty of great choirs in, in England. But I do believe this repertoire is absolutely marvellous. I mean, I think it's as important as the symphonic repertoire. And I think it sometimes needs just a little bit more care than some of the specialist groups lavish on it, simply because they do it all the time. Uh, And I think, again, it's a question of perspective. You know, I'm prepared 
to admit, in fact, I think I possibly see more clearly than some of the choral specialists where the really great music is and where the workmanlike music is. And I try and make recordings in this repertoire which are more expressive and more colourful, which have a greater respect of text, which is something that always excites me in, in vocal music of any sort. And also to put the music together in a way which I think is quite... Well, I shouldn't perhaps use the word revolutionary, but certainly different to many albums. You know, there has to be a logical reason why you follow one piece with another piece. And if you're working, as we often do, mixing musics from old music and modern or new music, uh, I always like to think there's a very strong thread that runs through these CDs, and I'm mm. quite proud of those and slightly frustrated when people don't bother to notice. It's always a shame. Speaking of those large-scale recordings, both Elijah and the War Requiem include performances by singers who are part of the Gabriella Young Singers Scheme. Is that something you think is quite important to sort of... Yes, it's very important. And actually, we're going to rebrand the Young Singers Scheme. Um, for me, I've always been very passionate about working with young people. And I often think the great divisions we make between old and young and professional and amateur are actually largely superfluous. I think it's possible to achieve really great things with young singers. Um, one of my passionate beliefs about education of any sort, in a sense, I think actually all the work we do in music is sort of broadly educational, I hope it is. But when we're working with young people, the higher you set the bar, the higher they tend to jump. Mm. And I think the big tragedy of education in this country is that we really seem to have state-sponsored ignorance trying to lower the bar uh, ever lower and ever lower. And one of the things that we've shown is that given goodwill, careful training and a lot of application and a little bit of inspiration, young people are capable of achieving the most outstanding things. And, you know, to bring, as we did, uh, a young choir of 300 singers to the Albert Hall to sing alongside 120 professional singers uh, and to get the sort of reviews they had and then to make a recording. They were absolutely dead after two days. But as I said to them, this is not work experience. This is the real This thing. is real work. And uh, they were absolutely outstanding. And then, you know, when that recording went to the episode de l'année, it sort of it rather proves that, that young people can achieve the most amazing things. One of the things that we're very proud about, and I think which makes us unique, is... Yeah, let's be honest, every orchestra, every choir in the country has an outreach uh, uh, department. Every uh, orchestra and choir tends to have an associated youth orchestra or youth choir. But we don't do that. We actually put young people at the centre of our professional work. Uh, and that's something that we want to expand upon and, and do more work with. We also try when we can, which makes my life more difficult, but we try when we can to work with people from areas who are not well served with cultural education. So, you know, we do turn down... Uh, requests from you know private schools and uh, choirs you know who are often very good but we feel that these young people have enough opportunity it's not a political statement and I would rather work your case is a political statement isn't it let's be honest um, but um, <laughs> uh, you know we would we would rather work uh, with in places where we're working alongside inspirational choir directors and they're doing work against the odds and we can support that work that, that to me makes me feel much happier absolutely I think we should hear um some of these young singers performing. Uh, would you like to introduce a, a clip from one of those recordings? Well, yes. Well, why don't we? Why don't we? We play the the last track of part one, which is "Thanks Be to God." You know the story. After um, uh, after decades, or rather years, three years of drought, at last the boy sees the patter of rain, and you have this most extraordinarily vivid chorus. Uh, you'll hear so many things here. The thing I love most is is, I mean, this music can be so boring, but then if you go. 
if you enter it, uh, enter into it uh, with the spirit with, with which it's written, this sense of communal, almost worship, having a good time singing, you'll hear the pedal of the organ, which was the original organ in Birmingham, roaring away. At the and then right at the end, when the choirs are silent, and you have this amazing scale, two and a half octaves down on the violins, and you feel the rush of the water coming straight in. This is fantastic theatrical music. Purely out of curiosity, if money and uh, location were of no concern, is there any particular repertoire or pieces that you'd like to tackle? Why, well, Steve suddenly run the balls or something? <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't help there. But, uh... yeah, yeah. I thought that might be the next step. Very hard to say uh, so many pieces. I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to do some of the big Vorjak pieces. Um, I, I would love to record Guru Leader at some point. Um, you know, but there has to be a reason to make recordings. Mm. Um, certainly we plan to record The Seasons, which I think is one of the great masterpieces and, and, and a slightly unsung masterpiece, a piece that's always admired more than loved, and I want to restore it into the loved category. Mm. Um, uh, you know, so we, we try and... I think I'm naturally attracted to pieces which are known to be difficult. I mean, you know, many people think Elijah is the most boring piece in the world, and sometimes when I hear it, I think they're right. But I think you can make these pieces work if you have enough passion to sort of get under the skin of them. I think it's time we revisited the sort of Victorian tradition of choral singing. Um, this was one of the great things of British music making, and it defines so much of the oratorio repertoire. I mean, if you look at Birmingham Triennial Festival, for example, where they commissioned pieces, not just English pieces, but pieces not just by Mendelssohn, by Vorjak, by Gounod, um, many, many English composers, and culminating in the Dream of Durantius, and that's certainly a piece on my hit list. Um, you know, this, this tradition was extremely vibrant, and I think, you know, we do have 
good choirs today, perhaps even better choirs than we had then, who knows? Um, and the early music movement you know, made everything rather small and neat, and I think it's about time we started doing big again. Going back to that grand scale. Well, yeah, I mean, here is a conductor who, on the one hand, records Berlioz with 500 people, and at the same time, you know, has recorded the Matthew Passion with eight singers and no chorus. So it is actually, it's not, it's not about being a, a power-crazed um, narcissist, or at least I hope it's not. It's about actually realising that for some sorts of music, the vastness of the experience is very, very important. I mean, I remember Malcolm Sargent said, you know, there was nothing more exciting than a vast choir singing pianissimo. And he's absolutely mm. right. That's a completely different sound than the Gabrielli concert of 15 people singing piano. Sure. It, you know, it, 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 one can make a, 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 some extraordinary... Uh, I mean, the human voice is just the most wonderful instrument. And big choirs are very exciting. One of the things I'm trying to do, and I think I'm succeeding, but is to bring small choir discipline into big choirs. And I'm quite ruthless about that, you know. Um, but I think, you know, a big choir shouldn't be unwieldy. And when, you know, I do read reviews saying you could hear every word of the text, mm. it means it is possible, but you have yeah. to work very hard at it. Absolutely. Out of curiosity, purely again, um, are there any locations in particular that you want to try and perform with that sort of precision choir? Oh, I mean, anywhere that's got space, anywhere that's got... Um, uh, what what we miss desperately is these very steep banked uh, um, rises on stages. And if you look at Victorian stages, and actually the Albert Hall isn't so far away from that. Mm. Um, those particular halls work fantastically for big choral pieces. Um, the Birmingham Hall could work quite well, but the organ is so prominent into the stage, it would present quite a problem for recording. Mm. Um, I just uh i think this is not going to happen but i was actually in new zealand uh, in may last year and they have four halls there which are all built by the same architect whose name escapes me but these are the most perfect victorian style halls with very steep bank uh, um, staging and uh, just old-fashioned shoebox uh style halls and i have to say quite outstanding acoustics i mean really as good as you'll hear anywhere in the world and they've got four of them are these period yes buildings? i mean yeah. these are all written about uh, built i think in the periods of 1900 to 1910 mm. and of course like most things in new zealand they're about 30 or 40 years out of date <laughs> so they're sort of very typical 1860s 1870s yeah. halls the other thing which of course is interesting with if you're recording a lot of Berlioz pieces it was quite normal uh, in that period sort of from the 1830s to the 1900s it was quite normal for the choir to actually be in front of the orchestra uh, with subconductors. And mm. that was sort of slightly changed in the UK where they began to put the choir behind the orchestra. But um, that, that inversion of balance, of course, is, is a very interesting thing historically. Yeah. Moving away from performance just for a moment and speaking again of architecture, um, obviously touring and performance takes up a lot of your time, but you have a home in Rutland, which I understand uh, you've turned into something of a grand project yourself. Oh yes, well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I live in 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 the. Well, actually, I'm postally in Rutland. I'm actually physically mm. just in Leicestershire by about two hundred yards. Okay. Um, and I have a seventeenth century house which had the, which I saw about fifteen years ago. I had my eyes on it, and it came mm. up for sale, and it's never been touched uh, since about the nineteen fifties, where a few minor things have been done, and. If I tell you it had 1610 on the door, the date of the great Monteverdi Vespers, you know, which was the piece I first started my career with, I sort of felt it was written in the stars. Seems to, seems I had to, to have this house. Yeah. Um, and we did, in fact, buy it. And uh, like most of these <laughs> projects, if you'd known quite how hard it was, you know, you, um, you, you wouldn't go there. Your next disc is coming out in May this year and returns perhaps to the slightly more clearly uh, historically informed performance uh, with Handel. 
can you tell us a little bit about the project? Yeah, I mean, I hope all our work is historically informed. I mean, you know, when we recorded War Requiem for you, we, we did actually bring quite a lot of 1960s percussion. Um, you know, we're always interested in, in, in the historical sound world. But this, of course, marks a slightly strange, because, you know, I'm obviously known by so many people as a Baroque conductor, which is rather silly because I haven't really done very much of that for the last 10, 15 years. Um, but I'm actually coming back to record Handel's L'Allegro, Il Penseroso in Moderato, which is a piece I've loved for years. Um, of course, it has been recorded before. But again, it's another one of these pieces which has always been more admired by uh, you know, the, the, the Handel fan club than, than loved. Um, and it is a, an absolute masterpiece. And we're actually recording the first version of this oratorio, I believe, for the first time, uh, which is slightly different to later versions. It's slightly more concise and I think far better for that. Um, this is the piece, I haven't recorded a Baroque piece now for just over 10 years, and this is the, the piece which really has the 18th century dream ticket. It's Handel setting Milton, Milton the most famous or most loved composer of the mid-18th century, and Handel amongst, uh, regarded as the greatest composer that the world had ever seen in that period. So there were a group of people who wanted Handel to uh, celebrate the culture and particularly the literature of his adopted homeland and the result is this extraordinary piece. Uh, L'Allegrio Pensoroso Moderato with the Italian title, the text of course as it's by Milton for the first two parts in English and the final part was actually the text uh, was written by Charles Jennings uh, who of course is the librettist for Messiah. So uh, if you like, it's it's a very much a compendium of, of who's who in, in 18th century London. Um, it's an extraordinary piece. Uh, I think it is ravishingly beautiful, pretty much from first note to last. You know, there's not a dead bit of dead wood in the whole uh, in the whole piece. Um, and it basically, um, it, there's no story. Um, it, it celebrates. Uh, the temperaments, l'allegro, the lively, the cheerful, the optimistic uh, person, uh, il penseroso, the pensive, the thoughtful, the perhaps slightly melancholic person. Um, and then in the third part, it's all wound up, of course, with a very 18th century model that what one must do is keep the middle way and aim for the golden mean. And within that very, very simple conceit, uh, Handel writes the most outstandingly beautiful music. Um, the choruses are relatively short, and there are four singers. There's a soprano who sings the role of Penseroso, which has the most beautiful, languid music you can, he ever wrote, and three male singers uh, who sing the part of Allegro, um, a tenor, and in the first performance of treble, and we were absolutely delighted to find, a, I think, a fantastic young boy treble who's now a young tenor, of course, inevitably. Um, uh, and he sang this role when he was 15, literally days before his voice started changing. Uh, it's a quite extraordinary sound, and I, I think it's a really very, very exciting uh, singer from a young man. Um, and uh, a bass who sings briefly as well. And then Il Moderato, which is also sung by a baritone. So it's uh, it's a... It's a a wide cast, but uh, as I say, quite extraordinary piece. The thing that particularly moves me, it brings us back to Houses in Rutland, is there's something about the pastoral world which is so loved in Milton and something that, that Handel very often picks up on. And a lot of this uh, extraordinary piece really celebrates the beauty of nature, the beauty of the English countryside, and, and that's one of the overriding themes. Mm. 
Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I thought to finish we should hear a section from the new handle recording. Is there anything in particular that you think we should listen to? Oh, dear, I don't know. What do you choose? Well, I mean, there's so many things you could choose. Uh, I suppose, well, if you had time, you probably ought to play two pieces, one happy and one sad. But if you're going to do a happy piece, I think you should play probably um, the laughing chorus in, in the beginning of part one. Uh, which, of course, is Allegro, celebrating the joy of mirth. And this was sung by John Beard, a, a very famous uh, 18th century uh, singer-actor, tenor, for, who also sang Messiah. And uh, just for sheer verve, you can understand why the 18th century audience went ballistic when they heard this. And, of course, they interrupted it and it had to be encored and, uh, several times. Uh, but it's just a tremendous piece of fun. It's quite hard to write a laughing chorus. I mean, a laughing policeman is something different. Yeah. But, uh, so, so have a um, haste the nymph and bring with thee mirth and youthful jollity. Thank you for downloading the Signum Records podcast. Okay, so it's competition time. Just to check how carefully you were listening to my very fast speaking. So who was responsible for the libretto of Handel's L'Allegro e Pensoroso? Ed il moderato? It's a slight trick question, but the answer was in the podcast. Send your answers to podcast at signumrecords.com with the answer. For more information on Signum Records releases, go to signumrecords.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Spotify, or follow us on Twitter at Signum Records.